Hi, everybody. My name is Pat Hogarty, and welcome back to California Real Estate Principles, Real Estate 300. This happens to be show number 21. What we're going to be doing today is continue, continuing our conversation or our discussion on financial institutions. The last time that we met, we were talking about credit scoring and the importance of, uh, or I think what I was more or less trying to uh, reiterate to you is that whenever you do apply for a loan, real estate loan, there are two things that they look at. The first thing that they do look at is the property that you're going to be buying where you're going to have a licensed real estate appraiser that's going to go out and do an appraisal on the property so that the lender makes sure that the value of the property is well worth the amount of money that they're going to be lending to you so that in the event of a foreclosure, they know that they can sell the property and hopefully get their money back. The second thing they're going to be looking at is looking at you personally. Two of the things they're going to be looking at is, number one, your capacity. In other words, do you own or do you earn enough money to realistically be able to go back and pay the loan back on a, on a monthly basis, if you will? So they're going to be looking at how much money you owe and, uh, all, and how much money you earn and where you earn that money from. And the other thing they're going to look back is not only your capacity, but your desire to pay. And in that case, they're going to be looking at your credit scores. And there are basically three companies that they're going to look at or they can run the credit scoring. One happens to be a company by the name of uh, TransUnion. The second one is one called Experian. And the third one is called Equifax. And those are one of three uh, credit card or credit uh scoring companies, and they're going to be looking at that credit score to determine whether or not, and by the way, when they're running your credit check, it'll list things like what you owe, uh, what kinds of credit cards you owe money on, uh, if you owe, owe money for car payments, and also they're going to be looking at how well you make those payments. In other words, do you always make them on time? Do you make them late? In other words, uh, how often you real realistically do make them. So what we're going to be doing now just kind of moving something around here. What we're going to be doing today is we're going to be talking about and what I wanted to emphasize is something called the credit application. And one of the things that I do want to emphasize is that many times when I'm showing you these forms, uh, or especially when it comes to finance, many times these things change over a period of time. The form that they have in your book and that I'm going to be showing you is a form that they utilize for both FA, uh, that they utilize for most loans, and the idea behind it is that if you fill this application out correctly, or the lender uses the application, then it's going to be meeting a standard for the secondary market, which we'll be talking about in a, a little bit, so that they can sell the loan after they originate it to another thing such as Fannie Mae, Ginnie Mae, Freddie Mac. When we talk about secondary markets. So what I'm going to be doing today is showing you this loan, spending a little bit, or showing you this form, spending some time explaining what goes in what boxes. And then from there, we're going to move on to the different types of institutional, different types of lenders that we have. And then finally, some government lending programs so that you're familiar with what they happen to be. So I'm going to be moving over here to my document camera. And uh, as I show you here, this is called the Uniform Residential Loan Application. I'm going to kind of have to blow this thing up and move it around quite a bit so you're able to see what it is. So again, this is called the Uniform Residential Loan Application. I want to direct your attention to the bottom of the form. 
I want you to notice that the form has two different numbers. This first one on the left-hand side, and I'll blow it up as far as I can, is called the Freddie Mac Form 65. So in other words, this form is meeting the needs of Freddie Mac. And on the right-hand side, the same form is called the Fannie Mae Form 1003. So what I want to do is just for you to keep in mind that this is a form that has been approved by these two institutions. So if it's filled out and filled out correctly, that it meets their desires or their requirements so that later on they may be willing to buy this loan. So I'm going to zoom back out of here for a minute. And I'm going to move up here to the top of the form. And again, zoom back in again because I have to do this for you to see this. The first thing that they're going to be saying on the form when you fill this out, if I can get this sort of centered or blow it up correctly, they're going to be asking you what kind of a mortgage are you applying for. So again, I'll blow it up. So they're going to be asking you, is this for a VA loan, an FHA loan, a conventional loan, or some other kind of loan? So they're going to want to know this. I'll see if I can blow it up even more so you can see what's in here. So that's the first part of the check boxes, right in this area here. The second thing they're going to do is they have an agency or case number, which happens to be just an internal number that's supplied, and a lender or case number. Over on the left-hand side here, they're going to be asking you how much money you are applying for. So is this going to be, um, you know, the, typically this would be if you're going to purchase something, for example, like uh, let's just make it simple so I can calculate it. So let's say you were going to buy a $100,000 piece of property. Maybe you're going to get a loan for about $80,000. So the amount of the loan would be up here. The next thing that they're going to do is put down whatever the interest rate happens to be. So in other words, it could be 4, 5, 6, 7, 8%, whatever that interest rate happens to be. It's going to be located right here. The next thing that they're going to want or put in here, and I'll blow this up again, is the number of months. And remember, <clears throat> uh, if you're going to have it for 15 years, it's going to end up being uh, 180 months, I believe. And if it's for uh, 30 years, it's going to be 360 months. So that's what you're going to have in there. The next thing they're going to be asking you is what kind of amateurization you're going to have. In other words, how are you going to pay this loan off? So you could have, if you check this box, where it's going to be a fixed rate amortization, meaning that you're going to have, where you're always going to have the same interest rate on the loan all along as you go along. The other kind that they have checked down here is, and I believe we talked about this maybe the last time, called a graduated payment mortgage. In this particular case, the idea behind it is the fact that you have and you're borrowing the money and what happens is, is maybe your payments are going to be $1,000 a month for the first year, then maybe 1100 for the second year, uh, 1200 for the third year, and then finally maybe at the fifth year, this kind of a loan would be where maybe the payments would start to even out after that. So it's just that kind of amortization. You can have something else, which what they say is explain if you have a different kind of a loan, or this one here, which is an ARM, which means adjustable rate mortgage. So anyway, that's that kind of a loan. As you go down below here, they're going to ask you what is the property that you're borrowing the money against. Now, keep in mind, 
most of us, when we are buying a piece of property, usually it's the property that we're going to go ahead and move into. So we'll be asking, you know, what is the name? You know, for example, if you're, the home you're buying is at 123 Main Street, Sacramento, California, that's what's going to go in there. The next thing they're asking you down here is what is the legal description of the property? And if you remember from Chapter 1, that talks about lot, like lot 22 of uh, subdivision unit number 2. Uh, uh, that's what would go in here. So it would be either a meets and bounds, a government survey, or a lot by lot description. I'm going to go over here to the right to see what's over here to the right. Okay. In this particular case, they're going to want to know if, if this, how many units it happens to be. So if it's a duplex or something like that, they may want to know is it a two unit, a three unit, a four unit, or whatever. And the year that it was built. So in other words, was it built in, you know, when was it originally built? Now, some of you may say, where are you going to get that information from? Many, many times what you can do is you can either get it from the county or you can actually get it from your title insurance company. Over here to the left, they're asking you, what is the purpose of the loan? So are you going to be getting the loan to purchase the property, or is this going to be a refinance? Are you going to get it so that you're going to be uh, actually performing or build the house from scratch for a construction loan? Or even possibly even a construction loan that you're going to be doing in addition to a house would be another thing, which would be a different kind of a uh, of a loan or so just so you know that here we have a construction permanent that means that you're going to get the construction loan and at the end of that the same lender is going to go ahead and give you a, f a permanent loan that'll pay off the lot and pay off the uh, construction loan itself going over here to the right if you have some other kind of loan they want to know what that is in other words if it's for some other purpose like an equity line of credit or something and then they want to know what is the property going to be used for. The property you're getting, is this going to be your primary residence where you're going to live in it? Is it going to be a secondary residence like a beach house or a mountain cabin or a ski lodge? Or is it going to be for an investment? So, for example, if you were going to refinance this house like I've done in the past where you refinance the house with the idea in mind, that you're going to maybe use the money to do some other kind of work on it, or maybe you're going to uh, buy another property, or you're going to be using it to buy a car or whatever. They just want to know what it is. And, or if it's an investment piece of property, what we're talking about is the kind that you're going to buy and that you're going to rent out, and somebody's going to be paying you monthly rental payments or a lease payment on. Going down from here down to the uh, bottom, continuing on, they want to know uh, if this is a construction project, what was the year that you acquired the lot, what was the original amount, what was the amount of existing loans. So, for example, if you have the owner of the lot that's carrying the loan, they want to know what that is. They want to know what its present value of it is. They want to know the cost of any improvements. And then they want you to total it across the top. Going over here... This happens to be that if you're going to complete this line, if you're going to refinance. So in this particular case, if you're going to refinance the property, they want to know what year did you get the property? Did you buy it? What was its original cost? How much is the amount of existing money that you owe against the property? They want to know what's the purpose of refinance. In other words, are you going to use it to do some improvement like put a pool in? air conditioning, heating system, or are you going to use it to buy a new car, pay for education? Why are you going to use that? And then if you have an improvement, they want to know, 
describe what the improvements are. Are they already made or are they going to be made in the future? So in other words, you could have had where you've, you've done the re work. Maybe you've remodeled the kitchen. And maybe you got to the point where you thought, like a lot of us, that you could get it, you know, just do it out of your own pocket. And what ended up happening is the amount of money started to exceed everything you had or quite a bit of what you had in savings. So you sit down with your family and just say, well, why don't we go ahead and refinance the house and that will help pay for those costs and replenish the money that we had to take out of the bank in the first place. So that's another reason why. Going down from there, this is the borrower's information. I'm going to zoom out of this a little bit here because I want you to notice on this part of the form, I think we've gotten everything. Let me see. Yeah. Over here is the borrower's part. And I want you to notice that they have the term borrower and co-borrower. Okay? The concept behind the borrower and co-borrower is the fact that what would happen is if, if, for example, if I was going to get a loan myself, I would fill out all of my information here on this side. And on this side over here, my wife may fill this out, or vice versa. It doesn't make any difference nowadays who happens to be the primary one or the, who's the main borrower and the secondary borrower. But it's just a place to put the information. So some of the things that they're going to ask you on here of both people is what is your name, what your Social Security number is, your home phone, your age, years of school, are you married, separated, uh, what your present address is, if you've lived someplace else where that happens to be. So in other words, it's just going down and asking information, same information on both sides. As you go down here, they're asking you information about your employer. That's the next category. So they want to know, in both cases, who do you work for? So in other words, who is it that you work for? Name and address of the employer, or are you self-employed? Now, if you're self-employed, that may be where you're going to have to also supply some additional information like financial statements about how much money you make, what your income is, what your expenses are, so on and so forth. Here they want to know your position of title, such as you know, college professor, truck driver, registered nurse, doctor, lawyer, whoever it happens to be, business phone, okay? And then after that, they're wanting to know other information associated with that where you've maybe worked before. Okay, so that's all the way down the bottom of that form. So get in mind that the first part of this is the house, who the borrowers are, and where they work. On the other side of the form, going up here, is monthly income. And they want to know, notice on this side, is they want to know the income for the borrower and the co-borrower and the total. Now, one thing that becomes important on this side is that what you're really trying to do when you get the loan is you're really trying to show all of the various sources of income that you have. So you may be looking at the fact of your primary job, a part-time job you may have. If you have a job that involves commissions, in other words, you may be where you're a car salesman and maybe you get a base pay and then you earn the majority of your money on some kind of commission or your real estate agent in the same situation. You also may find out that, uh, or you may be the type that works or receives a lot of overtime. Uh, there are certain occupations, such as in the medical field, I know a lot of registered nurses that work a lot of overtime. So a lot of their salary happens to come from, you know, they may have a base pay of seventy or $80,000 a year, but when they include all this overtime, they make their up in the hundreds of thousands of dollars that they make. So 
they have to include that. Also, what you're looking for is any kinds of dividends, rental income, uh, retirements that you receive, disability income, any kind of income that either you or the other people that are borrowing the money with you are going to are going to be able to show and produce. And that may very well require that you're producing things like income tax forms showing that you actually do make this on a continuous basis, pay stubs, if you receive income and dividends, proof of that, some kind of statements. Uh, you may find out um, if you're receiving some form of disability or retirement statements on that. So the, most, the lender can very well ask you to substantiate every single figure that you put down with some kind of document, independent documentation to prove that you actually make that. And normally, if you can, that kind of a loan where you're producing all of that documentation is called a full documentation loan, whereas the lender says, where did you get that money from? You can prove it. That Usually, that hopefully would make it so that you can get the best rate of interest loan possible. If you have a good credit rating and you can prove all of your income, you probably stand a good chance of getting the best interest rate. Now, from that... Uh, so anyway, I'm going to go down here. They also have on this right-hand side here some other kinds of expenses that you would have, such things as rent, mortgages, hazard insurance, real estate taxes, uh, mortgage insurance, homeowners do, so on and so forth. By the way, if you're ever in doubt about what to put on this form, I'm sure, absolutely sure, that your a uh, real estate loan officer would be more than happy to explain what that happens to be. And usually they have had, you're not the first individual they've had this issue with, so normally they can tell you how they've handled it previously or they may have either their supervisor or somebody else that can say, hey, we need a letter from your employer or we need some kind of a statement from the government or we need proof of your retirement or whatever it happens to be. The next thing that you're going to put down here is other kinds of income that you have, and they just say describe other income. Some of the other income that you may have would be things like alimony, child support, separate maintenance income, so on and so forth. Other kinds of income you have, you need to document that. Okay. Now, down finally down the bottom is going to be your assets and your liabilities. Assets are things that you have that are great. <laughs> So that would be things like money in the bank, stocks, bonds, mutual funds, real estate that you've owned, uh, motor homes, boats, all those kinds of things. Those are assets. Liabilities, on the other hand, are things that you owe. Many Sometimes we owe them against those things we have as an asset. So things that we owe would be things like uh, such as car payments, MasterCard payments, um, uh, payments on our uh, motor home, uh, just anything that we would owe. Those would be liabilities. Those would be things that the lender is going to take a look at and say, you know what, Pat makes a good amount of money, but he also spends everything that he earns. So he has nothing left in order to actually pay on this new loan. So that's what they basically want to know. What is your, What are your assets? What are your liabilities? Okay. So that's the total form in its most general nature that you would have to fill out. I would recommend that both... Uh, if you happen to be a real estate agent or want to be a real estate agent, I highly recommend that you have some form of a checklist that you can usually get from a lender that would actually tell 
or help your clients understand what documents they need to bring when they get ready to apply for a loan. And the reason why I say that's important is because a lot of us are busy every day. A lot of times our clients are busy. It might possibly be that uh, the lender is not very close to where your clients happen to live. And what would end up happening is, is rather than having them run back and forth, it's a lot easier to say when you go to the lender, do everything in your power to bring this with you. Bring your income tax statements with you. Bring your pay stubs with you. Bring your, your bills with you. And then that way, if the lender needs it, they can take copies and hold on to it. And by the way, keep in mind the lender, as mad as we may want to get with the lender, it's not the lender that's really asking for it. It's in reality, if you really think it all the way through, it's that secondary market. It's the Fannie Mae, Freddie Mac that's asking for those because they want to make sure before they buy that block of mortgages that those are pretty solid and all of the income people say that they make is really there and the house is worth what they say it's worth. So it's really we can blame all these requirements on Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac, if you will. Now, so we've gotten all that. The next thing we want to do is talk about the different types of lenders that you may run into. And again, I'm going to have to zoom in and out here. Okay, types of lenders. Okay, types. Now, the first thing that you're going to do is we have what we consider to be institutional lenders. And I don't know in some cases why we, there. some of these I can understand why we put in one category versus another. Some of them can be a little bit cloudy. But, for example, federal savings banks, banks, banks that we go to, those are considered to be institutional lenders. Okay? In fact, let's get a definition up here of an institutional lender so we make sure we're not kind of making it up as we go along. It says institutional lenders are very large corporations that lend money, uh, lend money of their depositors to finance real estate transactions. Their principal functions, function is to act as a financial intermediary, intermediary to transfer money from those who have funds to those who wish to borrow. Okay, now those kinds of things, meaning that money is being deposited with these people. So the banks are one given. You go down there and you give money to the bank. Usually you give money to the bank in a couple different ways. Some of the money you give to them, you put in there in the form of your paycheck. And the money that you put in goes in one day and it goes right back out the next day. So it's money they receive in checking accounts. You also have at the banks where you may very well have where you have a savings account. You may have certificates of deposit. You may have different types of investments you've made with the bank. So in other words, they may have money that they get a hold of and they have for a short period of time, and they have money that they get a hold of and they're holding on for, for a long period of time. The next one is life insurance companies is another one. You are typically not, as an individual, going to be involved with a life insurance company as far as getting your mortgage from them. Where you're going to be involved with a large life insurance company is typically if you're in the commercial real estate business and you are making or obtaining loans on things like shopping centers, office buildings, mobile home parks, uh, large projects. And, and life insurance companies, keep in mind, they receive money from you in the form of either you're paying it privately, you know, in other words, you're paying a monthly payment on your life insurance, or maybe you're doing it through work. Maybe you're paying a certain fee where you have life insurance through work. But when you when they get their money, that's a long-term deposit. 
In other words, you don't pay the life insurance company your monthly premium and then run down next week and take it out. So life insurance companies, from a strategic standpoint, are looking for really long-term, solid, uh, gold-plated types of investments. <laughs> because what they're having to do is they're having to take your money, and, bef- and, and how much money you pay is based on something called a premium. And they calculate that premium based on your age, how old you are, what your health condition is, how much longer you have to live. Because if you're depositing money for a life insurance today and you continue to pay it somewhere out in the future, that company is going to have to pay the people you leave behind, your beneficiaries. So consequently, it's a long-term investment. They have it for a long period of time, but eventually they're going to have to pay it out, okay? And they're looking for really solid gold types of investments. They may make different types of mortgages also. They may have where you borrow the money if you're a big, if you own a shopping center, you receive the money, and then you just pay interest, or they may actually want to have an equity position so that if you buy a shopping center for $3 million, they may say, well, you know what, we want to have an, a portion of that equity so that when you do sell it, we will get our return on an interest and also a growth in the amount that that value of that property has increased by. Okay? So in other words, if it's gone from $3 million to $10 million, a few years later, they may say, I want a certain percentage of that, of that equity growth or profit that you get. So they do different types of loans. The other kind of uh, investors are, pro- are in non-institutional. Some of these would be like private individuals. So, for example, if I sell my house today, and, for example, I sell it to somebody and we have a difficult time trying, you know, for them to get a loan, I may, if I'm allowed to, allow them to assume my existing loan, and I may agree to carry back my equity in the form of a second note, indeed a trust. Or I could actually have what we call hard money lenders, like we have a company here in town uh, by the name of Money Brokers that's run by somebody by the name of Bill Watson. He comes in and talks to our internship class. They have investors that are looking to invest their money in real estate or into real estate mortgages, so that could be something. Credit unions are another one. Credit unions are interesting because they sort of have gone from a philosophical and a investment standpoint, they all seem to do something a little bit different. What's happened over the years, uh, credit unions have tended to merge together. In other words, what happens is, is they usually get born out of the fact that we have a group of people that have a specific interest. So you may have somebody like a Kaiser Permanente Credit Union, a Mather Air Force Base Credit Union, a McClellan Air Force Base Credit Union. Okay, so these credit unions exist and their members come from that place. Like, for example, my first credit union that I ever belonged to was called Mather. It was out at Mather Air Force Base. The people that belonged to that credit union were members of the military. In other words, enlisted guys, officers, civilians, all those belonged to it. Uh, what kinds of loans did they make? They made share secure loans, so I could, in other words, I could have money in the bank and borrow my own money back out again. Uh, they would make car loans, uh, motorcycle loans, stuff like that. At the time, they didn't make really, to speak of, any kind of things like house loans. Okay, relatively small loans. Usually, most of the time we went there, that was the first place we ever borrowed money from. 
Uh, they understood the military really well. They understood that the first sergeant would stand up for us, all that kind of stuff. Since then, those, because, for example, in our case in Sacramento, Mather Air Force Base closed, and so what ended up happening is a number of years after that, that credit union got absorbed, and now that has become something called heritage credit union. So you see a lot of mergers, okay? Also, what kinds of loans they make. They still make car loans. They still have credit cards. They still have share secure loans. They are in the real estate business, but they're not into the business to the extent that you would see at a mortgage company or a uh, Wells Fargo or Bank of America, okay? A very small type of operations. You also have something called investment trust or real estate investment trusts. These work pretty much the same conceptual ideas like a mutual fund does. In other words, in the stock market, we have basically two ways we can own stock. One way is we decide we want to buy IBM, International Business Machines, or Microsoft, or Apple, or whatever. We go, we call the stockbroker, and one of the ways we can do that is by saying, I want to buy 100 shares of Apple Computer. I want to buy 100 shares of Google. I want to buy something. Okay, so we take our money out of the bank and we buy the stock. Typically, when we do that, we have, uh, if the stock does really well, we can make a lot of money. But if the stock doesn't make a lot of money, we can lose a lot of money. So typically, what we end up doing is rather than buying individual stock, we usually invest in something called a mutual fund. And that mutual fund takes all of our money together. It goes out and it buys stocks. It buys bonds. And it invests the money in certain types of investments. It might be like a technology company or an automotive type industry, or it might be a power type like PG&E types of companies. And what it does is it buys those, and it uses all of our money collectively it buys the stock, and then it receives the dividends, and it buys and sells the stock within the portfolio, and then it pays us some kind of a dividend. The advantage to that is the fact that we have more security because if one stock goes down, the other one may go up. So it's more or less a balanced portfolio. In the real estate business, for those of us that won't want to be in the stock market, we may decide that we want to be in the real estate business. We want it. We would really not... Mutual real estate investment trusts really come along where I want to invest in real estate, but I really don't want to be a landlord. I don't want to own a single-family house. I don't want to have a duplex. I don't want to go out there on the weekend and fix the fence. I don't want to hassle with trying to collect the rent or finding tenants to rent the property, but I still like real estate. So, again, I, along with other people, invest our money in something called a real estate investment trust, just like we do with the mutual fund. That real estate investment trust has professional managers. They go out and they can buy real estate like office buildings, shopping centers, things like that. They rent them out, they lease them, they fix them up, and then we get a return back to us based on rents, sales, or whatever. And you basically have at two extremes, you have two different types of real estate investment trusts. You have one where they buy buildings, operate, and own them. Okay, you have another kind where they buy and sell and they have mortgages. And then you have one in between called the hybrid where they have a little bit of buildings and they have a little bit of mortgages. Okay, so we, that would be another place that potentially if we were in the buying an office building or something, we may go to to get some money. Okay, but again, that's where that would come from. Pension plans, or I'm sorry, mortgage companies 
Mortgage companies are companies like Viatech, Countrywide Funding, companies like that. What they basically do is they're not banks. They may be in the business of brokering loans. What that really means in its most simplistic state is that those companies like Wells Fargo, Bank of America, Washington Mutual want to make loans. Not everybody that is a member of that bank, you know, they want to be able to market their services or market their loans to more than just the people that happen to be members of the bank. So they go to a mortgage banker or a mortgage broker. And they say, you know what, if you find loans for us, we will pay you a commission. Okay? So consequently, what ends up happening is, is that they may originate the loans. They may put the loans together in a portfolio or a package. They may sell them on the secondary market. They may actually create them and then, uh, or represent those other lenders, okay, and receive a commission. They may also do something like just servicing the loans. But they're not really, that, that's the kind of business they're in. Usually those are the people that we're going to to get loans if we're not going to a regular bank. And they're hopefully, theoretically, they're shopping for the best loan for us. We also have pension plans. Pension plans would be, you know, retirement plans. Uh, in California, we have things like uh, public employees retirement system, PERS. We have the state teachers retirement system. Again, those people get their money on a long-term basis. Every month, I put my money into the pension plan. I don't run down there tomorrow and take it back out again. It's like every month, I put it in. Every month, I put it in. Well, that pension plan has to find investments because the day is going to come that I'm going to say, excuse me, I'm not coming to work anymore. I want you to pay me. Okay, so they're looking for investments. Again, they're looking for large types of projects, although some pension plans will have loans that you can get on your own home depending upon of your employee and how they work. The last group that they talk about over here is government-backed loans. These people do not, the first one, FHA and VA, or FHA does not make loans. What they do is they have insurance. They insure the lender, the regular lender, that if in the event of a default, they will step in and take over the loan or make the lender good. And usually, not usually, but the type of insurance they have on that is called mutual mortgage insurance. It's called MMI, okay? Most of us usually, when we get our first house, as I mentioned many times before, we'll usually get an FHA or a VA type of a loan because we don't have really that much money to invest in the property at all. The other one that we'll have is something called CalVet. Again, that's if we're a California veteran. And when I say California veteran, I mean that you're living in California. Those laws have changed quite a bit now, so it doesn't mean that you have to have entered the service through California if you're just a Cal vet. Okay, so they have, and by the way, all these different programs here, I have link in the, links in the Blackboard website for more information. Okay, one other thing that they put down the bottom here that it is important that you know about is FDIC, Federal Deposit Insurance Corporation. They don't make any loans. <laughs> what they do is they basically protect your bank account up to a certain amount of money. So uh, it says the Federal Deposit Insurance Corporation is a government corporation that for a fee insures each account of a depositors up to $100,000. But they don't make any loans. Keep that clear. With all these initials and letters, it's hard to keep track of this. All deposits and savings banks and banks in California are insured by the FDIC because they pay for the premiums. 
If the depositor has more than the insured $100,000 in any one account, then he or she may lose that amount in excess of $100,000, which most people don't think of because they may not have $100,000 in there. If there's no savings bank or bank, uh, if there, I'm sorry, in excess, of, if there is a if there is a savings bank or bank failure. So if the bank fails, that's what we're talking about. The bank goes out of business. Okay. So in other words, you would be protected up to $100,000 if you had $105,000 in there. It's a possibility you could lose the $5,000. It would be wise to pay any excess in the different account or financial. It would be wise to put any excess in the different financial institutions, what they're saying. Okay. After that, they just basically go into a lot of different um, types of banks and stuff. Um, what they do here, though, is they give you an idea on this page of what kinds of business the banks happen to be in, or the or these institutions happen to be in. So, for example, if you're talking about federal savings banks, typically what they're looking for is things such as single-family homes, apartment buildings, home improvement loans, and manufactured homes. Those are the kinds of loans that they would make. Now, again, as I've mentioned many, many times, just because they say that doesn't mean that they're not going to move into that market, you know, as I speak. Who knows? You know, they, uh, you know, that's how we've gotten in trouble in the past where they realize, hey, you know what? The, 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 uh, apartment building loan business is down, so let me try another kind of a business to make money. So you can see some of them move around. General purpose banks will do things like business and auto loans. So for example, if you own a business and you want to get a loan to finance your inventory, that's who you go to, a bank. If you're going to get a short-term loan to meet things like, uh, such as uh, uh, payroll, you go to the bank. If you're looking at financing your accounts receivable, you go to the bank. Okay. In other words, trying to borrow money against your accounts receivable. They'll do things like conventional home loans, so will these guys over here. They'll do government back loans, so will these guys here. They do credit cards and they do construction loans. So you're going to see a lot of mix and match amongst them, but they're talking about from a philosophical standpoint. Large companies, uh, insurance companies, shopping centers, hotels, industrial properties, FHA home loans through mortgage companies, government-backed loans, okay? So, again, you know, you're just giving you an idea what kind of business you would, they would be in. Okay, and they, have, they spend a lot of time going over and giving you a lot of details there's pages and pages in here of what life insurance companies do, what private individuals do, and a lot of it is what I just mentioned to you. Um, so they have a different different category, if you will, for each one of them. The next thing is, is just talking about government-backed loans, that one little category. Okay. Keep in mind that we're talking specifically that this is talking about government-backed loans. It's almost like in a way of saying a co-signer for the loan or somebody's going to step in if you don't make the payment. So they notice under the government-backed loans, they have indirect and direct. Indirect means that the FHA, you go to a normal lender, a regular lender. You go, excuse me, I'd like to borrow some money. There are reasons why you would want to have an FHA loan. There are a lot of different programs that FHA has, a lot of programs to help first-time buyers, 
they have, for example, people that have maybe had some financial problems in their lives, such as a bankruptcy. FHA would be probably one of the first that would help you buy a house. All right. If you're going to buy a house, that maybe you're going to part of it is you're going to buy it and maybe use. Uh, you're going to need some money to fix it up a little bit. They have programs for that. So there's a lot of different things that FHA fits. Okay. VA, on the other hand, is a guaranteed loan. Okay, it's a form of like insurance. VA loans are typically for, typically for most of the time for veterans. Veterans, I mean people that served in the military. There are different service periods that you have to meet. There's certain requirements. But typically, let's say, if somebody happens to be in the military and they're in the military for probably in the neighborhood of at least more than six months, six months, a year or longer, they typically don't have a problem getting a VA loan. They get an entitlement. And uh, a lot of us, that's how we got our first house. In fact, I bought the first house I ever got was on a VA loan, a VA repo, actually, and the second house was using a VA loan. Why? Because I didn't have a lot of money. Okay, so that's typically why you would do it. Also used FHA. Wait a minute, that was the third house, was FHA. So there was a lot of times in the beginning where you use these government programs because you don't have a lot of money. Typically what you do is you buy the first house. You maybe, maybe it needs some work. You get it all fixed up. You live in it. Your family starts to expand. You go ahead and sell it. You get a little bit of equity out. Now you go ahead and you want to buy the second house. You do the same thing. You live there a number of years. You decide maybe your family gets a little bit bigger or maybe you're earning more money or something else happens. You want to move on down the road. You sell out a house. You get a little more equity. It's probably, unless you happen to be fortunate enough that the house is going up substantially in market value, you may get to the third or fourth house before you actually end up to be able to qualify, as I did, for conventional, although conventional lending has gotten to be a lot easier than it was in the past. The other kind of loan that you can have is something called a direct loan. This is through CalVet. CalVet, California Veterans Administration, or CalVet, actually raises money on their own through bond sales. When they raise that money, they use that money for two purposes. One is to lend money to the veteran, and the second one is to run the administrative day-to-day -day activities of CalVet. At one time, it was extremely difficult to get a CalVet loan. I mean, you could put your name on the list and maybe wait forever to get a CalVet loan. It's not like that anymore. I would venture to say that if you want to get a CalVet loan, you can go on to their website. You can find out if you qualify. Their interest rate, by the way, is not fixed. It's variable. It floats. Uh, they also are the ones that use something called a land contract instead of a deed of trust to secure the property. They actually buy the property. And hold on that you have the right to live in the property, but they own the property. You make payments to them when it's completely paid off, then you get the grant deed. And there's some restrictions on that as far as who you can sell the property to or who can, not sell it, but who can assume the loans. Okay? And there's certain limitations. They have a lot of good information on their website. Okay. Let me see here. Okay. This is a little bit hard to do. And I'm going to kind of try to show this on this page. They did this in your book. I think it's a good way of showing how things operate. What they basically did, and I'm going to zoom out and then zoom back in again. They have the page looks like this, if, I, if you will, more or less. And what they've done here 
and then I'm just going to show you the FHA. But what's really good about this matrix type of approach is that they have a column over here that will cover things like eligibility, source of funds, interest rates, so on and so forth. And then across the top, they'll say these are the requirements for FHA. These are the requirements for VA. These are the requirements for CalVet. So it's a good way in one snapshot that you can keep track of what's going on. Very, very nice. Instead of having to read through a lot of stuff, you got the basic core of the information. Okay. Now, I'm just going to go through one of these to give you an idea how this works. This is FHA. And let me see if I can zoom up here. Okay, so you get a gist of how this works. By the way, they're only talking here about the FHA 203B program. 203 is a fixed rate program. Okay, typically 30 year loan. FHA also has a lot of other programs. They have ver they have adjustable rate programs. They have re reverse annuity, uh, reverse mortgage programs. They have, um, graduated payment mortgages. They have mortgages that you can get where you get them and you can use part of the money to fix the house up. There's a lot of different programs, okay? This is just one of them. So anyway, this is the basic 203B program. It tells you right here what the eligibility is. In this particular case, which is important because when you look at the VA and the CalVet, it's different, okay? So in this particular case right here, uh, hold on a second. Um, wouldn't you know I would do that? Uh, in this particular case here, what they do is they say anybody is eligible for this loan that lives in the United States. Okay? Uh, I'm not sure as far as, um, I believe you have to prove that you're actually legally allowed to be here, but it's anyone that lives in the United States. The point here is that we're not talking about anything such as a uh, having to be a veteran or anything like that. Okay? Just any U.S. person living in the U.S. Sources of funds are usually or always considered to be approved lenders, okay? So in other words, and by the way, FHA also has, a pro, also has programs that are di direct, uh, if you will, they're called direct endorsers. And what that essentially means is that they can do all of the underwriting process. What it is is that FHA goes out, looks at the lender, makes sure they know what they're doing, does the hocus pocus, says you're okay, and then you're allowed as a lender to do all the underwriting. Okay? So very, very important. It's a way to, to get for FHA to get that responsibility out of their area to the, th to the lender. And then what they do is they let the lender go on, and then they go in and audit them and see how well they're doing. Next thing they talk about is what kind of a loan instrument you use, depending upon what state it is. It could be either a deed of trust or it could be a mortgage. Uh, term, typically 30 years term. Okay, that's with the way the loan. Interest rate is the current interest rate plus mortgage insurance premiums uh, uh, that are paid up front, by the way, uh, uh, prior to the close of escrow. And then they typically have a yearly a mortgage, a mutual mortgage insurance payment that you make as part of the mortgage. Okay. Uh, maximum purchase. This is deceptive. What this really means is that they don't care how big of a property you buy, but there's going to be a limit on how much they're going to loan you. They don't care if you buy a $10 million property, but you're still only going to have a certain amount they'll insure, okay? Uh, maximum loan amount. It says 97% of the maximum for the uh, county average household condo, and they give you these limits. By the way, FHA has a link on their webpage that tells you what those limits happen to be. 
What they are is they're different if they are in a more expensive or a higher priced area. There's a allowance for more uh, expensive, such as I think Alaska, Hawaii is two examples. Uh, down payment. It says down payment can be 3% minimum cash investment or 100% over the appraisal. The 3% minimum means that if you, if your house is appraising out and was within that limit and it's $100,000, you're talking about $3,000. This 100% means that if the amount that you go over, over that maximum, okay, that's what that means. So in other words, if the limit was, say for example, $300,000 was the limit. What would end up happening is you'd have 3% of the $300,000, which would be $9,000. That's what you'd put down. Now, if you had paid not $300,000, but let's say you paid $310,000, then you would have had a 3% of the $300,000 plus all that money above the $300,000, which would be ten. dollars So you'd actually have to come up with a down payment of $13,000. Right? Secondary financing is allowed. That's uh, is allowed at least according to this, prepayment penalty, there's none. This 30 days notice depends upon when you actually are talking about have gotten the mortgage. I think it's 84, 85, you have to give a three day, a 30 day notice. Is it assumable? Okay. Uh, after two years, points paid by the buyer or the seller, down payment, uh, monthly, or buyer's monthly payment, this is this is this doesn't explain it very well, but it's twenty nine forty percent. What it is is that the your monthly payment cannot exceed your basic monthly payment cannot exceed twenty nine percent of your gross income. Okay, so in other words, whatever your gross income is, you take twenty nine percent of that, and your monthly payment cannot exceed that. The 41% is, is that it's your, your, your monthly payment, including your payment on your house and other things cannot exceed 41%. So they're giving you two limits. Okay. Uh, you have to look at that in order to really get the whole thing. And then monthly salary after federal taxes, approximately three times the total monthly payment. So the concept that I want you to get through this is that there is a, a set of guidelines for each one of the loans. And it's nice to have them, if you will, on one page so that you can figure them out relatively easily. Okay. Um, let me see what else we have in here that I would need to go over at this point. Um, okay. I think at this point I'm just going to take and show you some of the stuff that I have on the website so that you can be familiar with what is there. Um, I'm going to change this over. And I'll go one more time. Okay. And I'm going to go to your website. Go down here to your website. Website links. I'm going to go down to the chapter. Get the chapter going here. And this happens to be, let me see, this is chapter, okay, here we go, financial institutions. Okay. A couple things I want to show you, and I'm going to jump through these fairly quickly. One of the things is, is that this happens to be the company called the Fair Isaacs, uh, if it comes up okay. This is the company here that actually worked on creating that FICO score model. So I want you to know who they happen to be. 
This is the company. Remember, we talked about that economic model. What it is is that we're always trying to guess how that works. It's proprietary information. We're always talking about, well, if we pay the, if we pay the credit cards down, we can borrow more money, or it'll affect our FICO score. These are the people that created the model. Okay? Okay, so I wanted you to see that. Okay. The next thing is, is this page here talks about your FICO scores. It's called My FICO. This has gotten to be uh, something that, uh, you know, I, I would almost say that they've almost got, you know, it's nice to know that your score is okay, but they've actually almost gotten to the point where they're starting to get people panicked over this. You know, like, hey, you need to get in there and check it constantly. You know, if somebody steals your credit card, they can have an effect on your credit score. You know, so they're making us so. Anyway, all these have a service that you can subscribe to where you can go in there and check what your score is on a regular basis. Um, and, of course, they talk about what the score is. They give you an example here, which I think is pretty good. They talk about or give you an idea. Let me see if I can blow this up here. I don't know whether I can. Let's see if I can make it lower. No, I can't. But here they give you a FICA score, okay, which is a three-digit score. And they'll tell you, okay, this is a 15-year home loan. This is a 36-month auto loan. If your score is between here and here, for example, on a home loan, you would expect to pay 5.98%. And as you know, as your score gets lower because of maybe not having made monthly payments on time or whatever, you're going to make a higher, you're going to make a higher house payment or a higher, um, yeah, just a higher house payment or a higher car payment or what have you. So it's just showing you how that works. Again, educa uh, information for you, education information for you. The next thing I wanted to show you is that I have the three uh, uh, bureaus in here. This happens to be TransUnion. So if you are interested in finding out more about and again, I think our internet connection is a little bit slow, but I have a link to every one of them to TransUnion, Equifax. Let me see. It might be the internet here. Let me close that one out and try the other one. Experian, see what happens. Okay, this is Experian. Okay. Okay, so you can go in here and read about them. Okay, another credit, it's another credit bureau. And the last one down here is Equifax, which is located right here. Okay. So, again, these are just putting a face to the name of the company that you hear about on a regular basis. A couple other things that I put in here for nothing was Countrywide Funding Corporation. That happens to be a company that makes all different types of loans. So I put those people in here so you can see what they do. We have a countrywide uh, funding. There have offices all over the Sacramento area. We have one not too far from the college here. You can get this is where you can go to get like a home loan. Okay, and uh, this happens to be Money Brokers. Money Brokers happens to be a what we call a hard money lender. Uh, again, this happens to be Bill Watson who comes in and talks to our class who's been in the business for I don't know. Uh, I hate you know he's been around forever. But this is people where they're buying those mortgages that you're carrying back on your house if you sell a second mortgage or they're what we call hard money lenders, okay? In other words, investors are looking to lend money to people that need that are in a, in a difficult situation, for lack of a better word. Uh, let me see. 
I'm trying to see if there's anything. Okay. A couple good sites I think that you need to be aware of. One is the Federal Housing Administration. I cannot say enough about this site. This site has all kinds of really good information about how to buy a home, how to sell a home, how to get financing, how to choose a real estate agent, on and on and on. A lot of really good information. It explains how credit works. It's everything. It does, it's a really good site. It does a really good job. And it's FHA. It talks about all the different programs that you may be eligible for. Okay. And uh, the next one down here is the Veterans Administration, as we call it, uh, the VA. VA just updated their website. They have a lot of new things here. They have uh, pages that will talk about frequently asked questions. So, for example, if you have, if you want to use your VA and you want to know what do I need to do, what paperwork do I need, what forms do I need, you can go here and it will list it all out for you. It will tell you exactly what it is that you need, how to get your entitlement, you know, and that's when you're getting ready to buy a home while you want to have all that kind of stuff lined up. And then the last one I want to show you that's on here that they talk about is CalVet. CalVet is a state organization. Uh, they allow you in this particular case right here, if you want to, you can apply online. You can go in and find out what the current interest rates are if you're eligible. Uh, all of those things that are necessary for a CalVet loan. Again, CalVet is trying to help veterans buy their first house. Okay, And so all of that information on here, and, and a lot of the things you're going to find in here that they're going to require are going to be things that they're also going to require if you get a VA loan. So they're going to want to st have stuff like the discharge certificate from the veteran, the DD-214. They're going to want to have that kind of information from them. Um, They'll also have things in here such as frequently asked questions, which I really love. Um, let, let me see. Right here is the frequently asked questions for the vet. So um, let me see. If you go down here, all the things that you typically would want to ask are all listed right here. You know, like if you're in the military now, can you use the program, so on and so forth, okay? So we've talked about a lot of stuff. There's a lot of stuff on the Internet. Okay, and a very, very important part is this real estate financing. So with that, I want to thank you very much for watching the show, and we'll see you back here the next time. Have a nice day.